If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've got to together surrender our lives. And say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. The Radical Together Podcast, with teaching from David Platt. When the greatness of God is our focus in worship, how should that affect us? This week, we continue the series, Awaken, Crucial Concepts for Biblical Worship, where we've been exploring what it means to worship God rightly, both as individuals and in our corporate gatherings. Today, David Platt will help us understand how God's greatness should hold our attention, incite our affection, and lead us to humble adoration of Him in worship. Here's David with a sermon entitled, Humility, from Revelation chapter 19. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Today we're going to revisit a non-negotiable in corporate worship that I am convinced the church desperately needs to revisit today. And it's the non-negotiable importance of humility in corporate worship. I want to start by reading a quote to you from a guy named A.W. Tozer, a pastor who I've quoted from at numerous times. And I'm going to put this quote up on the screen because I want you to hear these words. I think they're words that we need to hear in the contemporary church. He said, in my opinion, the greatest single need of the moment is that light-hearted, superficial religionists be struck down with a vision of God high and lifted up with his train filling the temple. The holy art of worship seems to have passed away like the Shekinah glory from the tabernacle. As a result, we are left to our own devices and forced to make up the lack of spontaneous worship by bringing in countless cheap and tawdry activities to hold the attention of the church people. And what I want to propose to you this morning is that it is not necessary to bring in cheap and tawdry activities to hold the attention of the church people. It's not necessary because the greatness of God is more than enough to hold the attention of the church's worship. And this is a truth we desperately need to revisit in the church today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, we started this series on corporate worship, Awaken, last week in the Old Testament with Nehemiah chapter 12 and saw the non-negotiable importance of community in corporate worship. We're not just a gathering of individual worshipers this morning, we are a community of faith. What we're going to dive in today is, is humility and the importance of humility in corporate worship, and we're going to launch into a majestic, powerful chapter of Scripture in Revelation chapter 19, one of the last chapters in the Bible. And before we jump in, we need to, to get the context of the whole book of Revelation before we even begin to read here. We need to realize that this is a book, first of all, that was written to a group of Christians in the first century that were facing a lot of persecution for their faith. The emperor Domitian was a cold-blooded murderer who was wreaking havoc on the church. One of the results of his persecution of the church was John, the author of this book, is writing it from an island where he is exiled by Domitian. 
So here's John writing to the Christians in the, on the mainland, encouraging them to stand firm in their faith amidst the persecution they're facing. Now, it's important for us to realize that's the context when we come to the book of Revelation because the first thing we, we do when we usually come to this book is we start looking at all the signs and, and pictures and symbols and start thinking about all these cool things that it has to teach us about the future. And it does have a lot to teach us about the future. However, the book of Revelation had a lot to teach them in the first century about the present. And so we need to look at this, this book and this passage in particular through two lenses. First of all, through the lens of what God was saying to those people in that time. And then as we see those truths unfold, it'll show us what God is saying to all people of all time, including us today, about things in the future. So that's the context that leads us into Revelation chapter 19. I want you to look with me at verse 1. This is where all of eternity is headed. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. See, you're going to say Amen in all of eternity. So go ahead and start practicing now. Amen. Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, for hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This passage is the climax of praise and worship that all of the book of Revelation up to this point has been leading to. And I want you to see that every, every word, every verse in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 through 10, revolves around the greatness of God. He is at the center of New Testament worship. He is at the center of eternal worship. And the question we need to ask is, is God really at the center of our worship today? Is God really at the center of our worship? And what does that look like if he is? Because I believe this is a question that's in doubt in the church today. And so I want you to see in this text three reasons, to go back to what Tozer challenged us with, three reasons why the greatness of God will be at the center of our worship instead of cheap and tawdry activities that would entertain us in worship. Three reasons why the greatness of God will be at the center of our worship. Number one, because he desires our worship. Number one reason why the greatness of God will get all the attention in our worship is because he desires our worship. 
Now, when you come to Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, it starts off and it says, After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude. What is the after this? What is this referring to? And in order to answer that question, we actually have to look back at the two chapters before this, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And basically, what's happening in those two chapters, the Bible is talking about Babylon. Now, Babylon, and that's, that's who's referred to as the great prostitute in, in verse 2, and we're going to see why that's the case in just a second. Babylon has quite a, a history throughout the Bible, and it's not a very good history. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, this is where God condemned human pride and arrogance as they tried to build this tower to him. And then when you get to the people of God, Israel, Jerusalem is attacked by the Babylonians. Just like we saw in Nehemiah chapter 12 last week, the result of them having to rebuild those walls and rebuild the temple was because the Babylonians had destroyed the temple. The Babylonians had destroyed the city of Jerusalem and taken the people of God into exile. And so when you get to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, and you think about this, remember, first of all, through the lens of, of these believers who were hearing this in the middle of the persecution they were facing, we've got a picture of Babylon as the culture around them, the Roman Empire that was bearing down on them, that was persecuting the church. And the message is clear in Re- Revelation chapter 17 and 18, that one day the Roman Empire, one day the Babylon that surrounds the early church there would, would be gone. It would be no more that it would not last forever. At the same time, what we see in the book of Revelation, especially in these two chapters, is that the church throughout history would be an outpost, so to speak, in the middle of a culture that was non-Christian, maybe even at many points deliberately anti-Christian, that was filled with all the pleasures of this world and all the satisfaction, all the wealth of this world that would pull people away from God. And that's the picture we have of the adultery, so to speak, in Revelation 17 and 18. Look with me at the first two verses of Revelation chapter 17. This is why Babylon is referred to as the, as the prostitute or as the adulterer. It says in verse 1, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. This is a picture of spiritual adultery. The culture, worldly fame, worldly glory, worldly power, worldly luxury, worldly satisfaction surrounding the church. And there was a big temptation in that day. If you were going to lose your life for trusting in Christ, it was very tempting to say, maybe Christ is not the route I want to go in my life. Maybe I'm going to go this route or that route. And so they were bombarded by the pleasures all around them in the world, the temptations of those pleasures. And what the book of Revelation is showing us is that in the middle of the anti-non-Christian culture, here is an outpost called the church, that God desired the worship of his people in the middle of all of these different things the world was offering to them. Now, you've got that picture when you come to Revelation chapter 19. And so I want you to see God's desire for worship unfold in two different ways. First of all, God orchestrates history to display his glory. The primary point of Revelation chapter 19 is that God is more glorious than anything this world has to offer that his greatness and his power, his satisfaction and his pleasure far surpass anything Babylon, so to speak, has to offer us. 
that God has orchestrated all of history from the beginning of the Bible all the way to this point and into all history. Everything is aimed at one thing. He wants to put his glory on display. He wants to show over and over and over again that he is worthy of the worship of all nations and nothing else is worthy of our worship. He has orchestrated all of history to be at this point culminate in Revelation chapter 19, a picture of hallelujah, praise be to God. He alone is worthy of worship. Nothing in this world can compare with him. You do realize that when we come together for corporate worship, we worship a self-exalting God. Let me repeat that one more time. We've got to realize this. When we worship God, we've got to realize that we are worshiping a self-exalting God, his His drive is to be glorified in all the world. That is his desire, his aim in all of history, in all of our lives, in all of his church. Everything is aimed at glorifying his name. Everything is made to center around him. And he lives for his glory. Now, this This is something we can miss very easily in our culture today where everything is made to center around us. And if I were to ask you the question this morning, why why has Jesus saved you from your sins? I'm guessing the predominant answer across this room would be, well, because he loves me. And that's true in part. But let's take it a step deeper. Why does he love you? Why does God love us? Well, I don't know. He just just does. Well, no, there's a reason God loves us. There's a reason Jesus died on the cross for us. And yes, it's a part of his love, but ultimately, Jesus loves us so that God would be glorified in us. Jesus loves us so that through our lives and his redemption and his salvation in our lives, God would receive glory. Everything ultimately centers not around you and me. Everything ultimately centers around God. Everything is aimed toward him and and him alone. Some some of you might think at that point, well, are you saying, David, that God is selfish? Are you saying that God is self-centered? I believe that's exactly what Scripture teaches. I believe God is radically self-centered. He lives to exalt himself. Who else would we have him live to exalt? Who would he put higher above him that he would submit himself to? Because at that moment, he would no longer be what? God. He is radically self-centered. He is radically centered around God. This This is different. We don't... We don't bring our children to, to Sunday school or Bible study on Sunday morning and have them bringing home pictures that say, written on them, God loves himself. But that's exactly where all of history is aimed toward. And he's designed it that way so that, so that, ladies and gentlemen, you and I are not at the center of God's universe. God is at the center of his universe, and everything revolves around him. All of history orchestrated to display his glory. God, help us to get a, a picture of this. Now, some of you are thinking, David, I thought you told us last week that worship, worship involves us. 
And the sense is about us. And this is where it gets really good. God orchestrates all of history to display his glory. But second, God ordains his church to enjoy his glory. He ordains his church to enjoy his glory. And you get through this passage, you get down to verse 6 and 7, and the church chimes in, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. And it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. You see rejoicing equated with giving him glory. Don't miss the picture here of the church. Here's the church amidst Babylon, amidst all the pleasures and wealth and fame and luxury that Babylon has to offer, and the church is rising up and saying that God is the satisfaction of our souls, that God is the joy of our lives, that we live to worship him, and there is nothing in Babylon that can compare with the glory of God and the joy we find in the glory of God. Here's the beauty of biblical worship. God's desire for his glory and our satisfaction in him go hand in hand. It only makes sense. If, if God is infinitely loving and all that is love is summed up in God, then what is the greatest way he could show love to us by giving us what? Himself. Enjoyment of himself. Glory in himself. Don't miss the beauty of this. God in his infinite wisdom has not given us in our lives silver or gold or temporary pleasures or fleeting satisfaction. He has given us infinite love and enjoyment in his very character, glorying, worshiping himself. God ordains the church to enjoy his glory. Everything centered around him. And that's why Psalm 148 would say something like, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, mountains, hills, fruit trees, cedars, wild animals, all cattle, small creatures, flying birds, kings of the earth, all nations, princes, all rulers on the earth, young men and maidens, old men and children. They all praise the name of the Lord. Why? For his name alone is exalted, and his splendor is above the earth and the heavens. And he's raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his saints, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. That, that's why the greatness of God must be at the center of our worship, because he desires our worship. And if anything else is at the center of our worship, then we have missed out on the eternal purpose for which we have been created. He desires our worship. And it's when we, when we worship him that we find ultimate enjoyment in this life. He desires our worship. Second, because he deserves our worship. The greatness of God will be the center of attention in our worship because he deserves our worship. Now, here's where we see how, how John expands on this, this whole overarching picture of God desiring our worship. I want you to see. I want you to see what causes the roars in Revelation chapter 19? What causes the sound of thunder in Revelation chapter 19? If we are going to worship like the multitudes in heaven worship God, which I think would be a worthy goal, if we're going to worship like they worship in heaven, then we need to see what they see in God. And what I want you to do is I want, I want us to see the greatness of God that is revealed over and over again in Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to run through some of the characteristics of God that are emphasized, that are exalted here in Revelation chapter 19. I want you to see them with me. First of all, he is Savior. He's Savior from the very beginning. Hallelujah. Salvation belongs to our God. Now, this is more than just individual salvation. The fact that we are saved from our sins as individuals through what Jesus did on the cross. This is a picture of all of history 
From Genesis chapter 3, when sin came into the world and man was separated from God, and the whole picture from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation chapter 19 is God redeeming people, bringing people back to himself through his grace and his mercy. And so when you get to Revelation chapter 19, it's a picture of the culmination of the fact that God has redeemed his people. He has made salvation available to them. He is Savior. Second, he is glorious. He's glorious. Salvation and glory belong to our God. Now, you notice that four different times in this passage, one word is mentioned, hallelujah. What's interesting is that's a very common word in the Old Testament. It's actually not common in the New Testament. This is the only time it's used in all of the New Testament. And it's used four different times, emphasizing praise, glory being given to God. J.T. quoted from Psalm chapter 115, which is a part of a group of the Psalms that's called the Hallel, which basically means praise to God, and it's repeated over and over and over again. And those Psalms are dedicated to the exodus of when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. And so when we get to Revelation chapter 19, John brings in this imagery from the Old Testament of God delivering his people and giving him glory as a result of that to say God has delivered us and he is worthy of all of our praise and all of our glory. And so he repeats over and over again, hallelujah, praise the Lord. He is Savior, he is glorious. Third, he's omnipotent. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. In light of the picture of Babylon and evil and suffering in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 that the world has, Revelation chapter 19 exalts God for his power. Who alone Who alone has the power to conquer evil and suffering in Babylon? Who alone in the world can conquer evil and suffering? He can. He alone has the power to do that. He is omnipotent. Next, and these next two go together. He is true and he is just. It says, for true and just are his judgment in verse 2. He's true and he's just. Now, this is where it's really interesting True and just are his judgments, and it says he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And that's what God is being praised for in Revelation chapter 19. God is being praised for his vengeance on those who had, had killed his people. Revelation chapter 17 verse 6 said that the woman, Babylon, was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Babylon had taken the lives of many of God's people. And so in Revelation chapter 19, he's actually, actually praised in his truth and his judgment for the vengeance he brings on the nations. Now, that's, that strikes us as a little unusual, that God would be praised for his vengeance. I remember the, the first time I preached here at Brook Hills, I, I was quoting some from Psalm chapter 149, and the beginning of that psalm is just majestic. Praise be to the Lord. Sing the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the saints. God has given us salvation. It's just this, this, this psalm where you're saying amen after, after every single verse. And then it gets to about midway through, and it says he inflicts vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. And all of a sudden, the amens kind of slow down. And then he says, he binds the kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of the Lord. And everybody's like, okay. And then you jump into Psalm 150. Praise the Lord, praise God. Oh, yes, amen, amen. And so we've got this little piece of the character of God emphasized in Psalm 149 that says, am I supposed to say amen to vengeance on the nations? What I want you to see 
is that what's being emphasized in Revelation chapter 19 is not the, the suffering that people will ultimately experience because of their sin. What's being emphasized is that we have a God who does not turn a deaf ear to injustice and evil. He does not pretend like it's not there. He does not pretend like it's not real, and he doesn't pretend like it doesn't hurt. He is a true and a just judge. And this is big for us to see in our worship. What would it do for our evangelism in the church today if we realized, if we really realized that the people around us who are without Christ in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and in the nations, that if they are without Christ, they right now sit under the judgment of God. Would that propel us? God, help us. Would it propel us to make the grace and mercy that he desires for them to know made known to them with the gospel he's entrusted to us? His justice, his truth, are at the center of worship in Revelation chapter 19. Next, he is eternal. Verse 3 says, Hallelujah, the smoke from her, the smoke from his justice on Babylon goes up forever and ever. His justice is eternal. His truth is eternal. His power is eternal. All of these characteristics that we've seen of him, they last forever and ever. Now, this is solemn news. And something I would urge every single person within the sound of my voice to consider this morning. I would urge you to realize that the adversary would delight in nothing more than to convince you that your sin really is not going to matter in eternity and that you can play around with sin of no consequence. It's not true. The judgment of God on sin is irreversible. It is final. Yes, his grace is eternal too. Praise be to God, his grace is eternal, but so is his judgment. And this also is very encouraging to see his eternality, especially in light of this last week. Isn't it good to know that in light of what happened at Virginia Tech, isn't it good to know that there will be a day when there will be no more senseless acts of violence and injustice and evil and suffering? They will be no more because he is eternal in his justice and his truth. We praise him because he's eternal forever and ever. He is mighty. You get down to verse 6. Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. I love this, this phrase here in the book of Revelation. Got to know a little background here. Domitian, the emperor of Rome, had actually declared that he would, should be addressed as Lord and God. And so if you were going to address the emperor of Rome, Domitian, you would call him Lord and God. And so here's John. He's sitting in exile on the island of Patmos, and he's riding to the mainland there that's under the emperor's rule, and he decides, I'm going to show him who's God. And again, this is one of the only times in the New Testament where this is emphasized John, and he does it nine times in the book of Revelations, he says, it's not just Lord God, it's Lord God Almighty. And that's where, that's what separates you, Domitian, from my God. And you may have me on the island over here, but he's still Almighty. Isn't that good? That's a little, that takes, that takes some guts right there. But John just landed out there. What's he got to lose? He's over here by himself, isolated. Almighty. He is mighty. He is above every God, every idol. That could be worshipped in this world. He is mighty. Next, he is sovereign. 
He's sovereign. The Lord God Almighty reigns. He is in control. He is on his throne. He is reigning in heaven. This is a great picture. The sovereignty of God is all over the book of Revelation. How do you, how do you hold fast to your faith if you're a first century Christian and you're facing persecution all around you from Babylon? You hold fast to your faith because you know that God reigns over Babylon, that God reigns over Rome, God reigns over every power, anything this world could ever bring us, God reigns. Satan is on a leash. That is the message of the book of Revelation. God is sovereign. Finally, he is holy. We're going to get to this more in a second where his bride is represented as bright and clean because of the righteousness that had been given by Christ shows the holiness of God's people. Now, I want you to look at that list. He is Savior. He is glorious. He is omnipotent. He is true. He is just. He is eternal. He is mighty. He is sovereign. He is holy. If we have that kind of God, then why would we not want to put the greatness of God at the center of our worship? Why would we want to focus on anything else when we gather together? It burdens me that in our desires to attract people into worship in the church today, there has become a great temptation to dilute worship and to dilute the picture of the truth and justice of God and the sovereignty and might and holiness of God. And it's been done in a desire to attract more people. Ladies and gentlemen, I have news for you. People are not starved for the greatness of our music. They are starved for the greatness of our God. People are not starved for entertaining speeches and slick performances. They are starved for the Savior who is glorious and all-powerful and true and just and eternal and mighty and sovereign and holy. They are starved to see Him because if they don't see Him in our corporate worship, where will they see Him? On TV? Movies? On DVDs? On the Internet? God, help us not to in any way dilute this picture of greatness. And when we see this picture of greatness, we will worship like the multitudes of heaven, worship God for all of eternity. See his greatness, because then see the gladness of God's people in worship. See the people's response. When you get down to to verse 5 and 6, the church is called into this thing, and the church begins to praise God. It says in verse 5, in a calling to the church, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Here's the first response of God's people, to fear him. We revere him. We fear his name. In corporate worship, we revere him. Our worship will demonstrate. Our corporate worship, don't miss this, our corporate worship will demonstrate what we believe about God. Our corporate worship will show if we are bored with God. And our corporate worship will show if we are casual with God. And our corporate worship will show if we revere and fear God. We revere his name. And then it says, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Second, we rejoice in him. 
We rejoice in Him. Why do we rejoice in Him? Well, you look at the whole, whole chapter because sin is judged, because God is reigning, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. We've got a lot of reason to rejoice. What's interesting is these two words, rejoice and be glad, the only other time in Scripture where they're used together like this, rejoice and be glad. Anybody remember where it is? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, talking to some people about persecution. Rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted because your fathers faced persecution before you. Rejoice and be glad in the middle of persecution. Why? Because God is glorious. Because God is all of these things that we've seen. That's why we rejoice in him. And then third, this is the best part, we are ready for him. We revere him, we rejoice in him, and we are ready for him. The marriage of the lamb, the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself what? It's made herself ready. Here's the picture of of the bride, of the wedding banquet. It's a picture that we've seen in New Testament all the way to this point. We'll talk about some at Secret Church on Friday night. Everything headed to this. Now, in, in first century, you basically had two main stages in a wedding. Now, get this picture, two main stages. You've got the betrothal, which is basically when a man and a woman are committed to be married, and they're, they're almost looked at as husband and wife at that point, even though they have not officially been married. You've got the betrothal, and then you have the actual wedding. And the wedding, basically the way it would work was the groom would go with his attendants to the bride's house and take the bride from her house and bring her back, bring, bring her back to his house where they would have the wedding celebration. Okay? So you got the betrothal, got the commitment to each other, and then you've got the groom going to get the bride and bringing him back to, bring her back to his house for a wedding celebration. Now, take that picture, and let's put it in the New Testament for a second, especially in light of Revelation chapter 19. A God who has said that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess he is Jesus, he is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We know that we have eternity in heaven guaranteed by the grace of Jesus Christ. We are waiting, ladies and gentlemen, for the groom to come and to get his bride. And there is coming a day when he will come for us and he will take us to his home where we will spend eternity with him forever. That's why God's greatness is at the center of our worship because we're ready in this room. We're ready for our groom to come and to take us as his bride. And as a result, we will fix our eyes and our thoughts and our minds and our hearts on him week after week, day after day, until he comes back because we will show ourselves ready. We won't be asleep when he comes. We won't be bored in our corporate worship. We will be ready in our corporate worship. Isn't that a great picture? See the gladness of God's people in worship. He deserves it. He deserves all of our worship. Greatness of God will get the intention of our worship because he desires our worship and because he deserves our worship. And finally, because he draws us to himself in worship. Because he draws us to himself in worship. Now, before we see how this unfolds, I want us to think about the opposite of Revelation chapter 19. As opposed to God-centered worship, I want us to think about man-centered worship. And it's part of what we see creep in here, even in Revelation chapter 19. Beware the pitfalls of man-centered worship. First pitfall is the danger of misplaced devotion. The danger of misplaced devotion. Did you catch what happened in verse 10? John. John, the disciple of Christ, one who has been faithful all of his life, the one who's writing the book of Revelation, in addition to a few other books in the New Testament. It says, at this 
I fell at his feet to worship him. At the angel, at the messenger's feet, John bows down to worship. But he said to me, do not do it. That's Greek for, John, what in the world are you doing? Get up. You don't worship me. Do you see? Even here in Revelation chapter 19, in the climax of worship, the subtle temptation to let worship all of a sudden slip into idolatry and miss out on who is really the object of worship. Now, do you think if it was a temptation for John that it might be a temptation for us today? Sure, we would not openly say we are, we are worshiping idols. John would not have said that. But is it possible for us to begin to put so much focus on the forms of our worship that we forget the object of our worship? Even to put so much focus on the people who lead us in worship that we lose sight of the one we are worshiping. You look at the contemporary church landscape today, including us, it is very possible for us to begin to worship worshipers or even to worship worship itself as opposed to worshiping God. We've got to beware of misplaced devotion in the church. And I want you to see what that can lead to, the danger of second misdirective motives, misdirected motives. What happens is when, when the angel, the messenger, sees John, he immediately says, get up, what in the world are you doing? But there, there becomes, and this is mainly with preachers and those who lead in worship, corporate worship, there becomes a, a very serious temptation to begin to enjoy the honor, the respect, the glory, so to speak, that one has before God, God's people. And certainly, most preachers or musical worship leaders would not say, I want to glorify myself. They would say, I want to glorify God. But it's very tempting to also say, and I, I wouldn't mind being glorified in the process. John 3.30, remember what John the Baptist said? He must become greater, I must become less. I can speak from personal experience. It's very tempting to want to say, he must become greater. And I, I wouldn't mind becoming greater too. It's not New Testament worship. It's not humility in worship. God guard me, God guard those who lead us in musical worship from any misdirective motives. That everything is made to center around his greatness. And that when that happens, we actually become less. Not only selfish motives, but even good motives, motives in the church. There's a lot of discussions in churches today about how we can accomplish this or that in worship. We worship to do this, or we worship to do that. We worship in order to, to, do, to do this. And what we've got to realize in Revelation chapter 19 is that worship is an end in and of itself. We don't worship God in order to do something else. We worship God, period, exclamation point in verse 10. Worship God. That's it. You worship him. He is the end of our worship. 
We don't worship God for some ulterior motive because when we do that, then now we have exalted something above God. We worship God so that this can happen. No, we worship God, period, exclamation point. He is our motive. Beware of misplaced devotion and misdirected motives. And finally, the danger of misunderstood success. What happens is when we have misplaced devotion and misdirected motives, we begin to walk away from worship and we ask, well, how did you feel about the worship service today? How did the people feel? Did everything go smoothly? Did we nail that song like we had practiced? Did everything come out the way the preacher planned for it to come out? Did we have a large crowd? And these questions begin to overshadow the one question that is most important. Ladies and gentlemen, what ultimately matters is not what you think about this worship service and not what I think about this worship service. What ultimately matters is what God thinks about this worship service. That's the question that sometimes gets ignored in that whole picture. So we've got to be careful not to gauge success by anything apart from that question. It may not make us popular and it may not, may not enable us to grow the church like everybody else says it should be grown, but it's the question that is most important and that needs to be asked. What does God think about our corporate worship? Now, that's the dangers pitfalls of man-centered worship. Now I want us to come to Revelation chapter 19, and I want us to see the power of God-centered worship. And I want you to see the Trinity involved in this thing. First of all, God the Father seeks us for worship. God the Father seeks us for worship. When you get to verse 9, the angel said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited, who are called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The whole picture of the New Testament, even back into the Old Testament, is God taking the initiative, divine initiative, and calling people to himself and inviting people to himself and to seeking us out. John chapter 4, God the Father seeks those who will worship him. That's what Jesus says. He is seeking us out. God the Father desires our worship, and he seeks us for worship. He calls us to himself is what Revelation chapter 19 is saying. Now, it's at this point we've got to measure that with one of the buzzwords in contemporary worship today called seeker sensitivity. We need to be seeker sensitive in our worship, and basically what, what is meant by that is that we need to be sensitive to people, especially who are outside the church, when we come in together to have worship so that we can bring more people in. We need to gear things to be sensitive to those who are seeking, those who are interested in God. And it's at this point that I come to the realization, and a realization that I want to admit to you, to all of you, I'm not that good. And I don't believe we're that good. I'm not that good of a speaker to draw the crowds to hear me speak. And I don't believe we're that good. With all that we can put forward to draw the crowds to hear us speak. But here's what I am convinced of. I am convinced of the fact that when God Almighty is exalted in this room through His Word, when God is the center of our corporate worship and everything is centered around Him, and if we are are able to give a picture of His greatness, that He will do the seeking for us. And He will draw people to Himself. 
Who are we to think that we know how to draw people to him better than he does? He's been doing this for all of eternity. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. He is the divine seeker. So worship, corporate worship, ultimately is centered around the divine seeker, pleasing him and letting him do the work. I want to, I want to show you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You've got to see this. Turn back to the left. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is a passage that is talking about corporate worship. It's the passage we mentioned last week that talks about amening in church, in in worship. I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24. This is talking about somebody who doesn't know Christ coming into corporate worship. Look at the picture. Verse 24, 1 Corinthians 14. If an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, in other words, proclaiming the greatness of God in His Word, If they come in while that's happening, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Isn't that a great picture? That's the picture. People would come in to corporate worship in the New Testament, see the greatness of God being exalted in his word, and the result would be they would see their need for God, fall on their faces and say, the Lord God is among you. Isn't that the goal of worship? Not so that anybody, seeker or not, would walk away saying, what a great worship service. The goal is so that every single one of us from this room would walk away saying, what a great God. He has called us to himself, and we have responded to him, and everything is centered around him. God seeks us for worship. And then, don't miss this, Revelation chapter 19, God the Son, he enables us to worship. The picture of the, the, the bride of Christ says it's made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Now, the emphasis is not here on the fact that, that the bride has put fine linen, bright and clean on. The emphasis is on the fact that these clothes were given to her. That the brightness and the cleanness and the holiness that is symbolized in them were something that were given, her, given to her so that she could worship. This is a picture of the righteousness of Christ that robes all of us by the grace of God when we trust in him to forgive us for our sins. And he puts his righteousness and his holiness on us. In corporate worship, we do not come before God on our own merit. We come before God on the merit of Jesus Christ and that which he has bought for us. Jesus enables us to worship apart from his righteousness. Then how can we worship? He enables us to. And then God the Spirit directs us in worship. You get to the end, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, definitely a picture of the Holy Spirit, understood that way in the first century as these Christians read that. And the whole purpose of the Spirit of God is to lead us to see the glory of Christ, to point us to the glory of Christ. Now, if God the Father seeks us for worship and God the Son enables us to worship and God the Spirit directs us in worship, then if we minimize the greatness of God, where will that leave us? It'll leave us at a point where we can have fun in worship and we can be entertained in worship and we can even draw large crowds in worship, but ultimately our worship will be hollow because he is the one who is acting in worship, seeking us, enabling us, and directing us by his spirit. Do you see why the greatness of God must get all of our attention in worship. And we must humble ourselves toward that end. 
I want to bring back Tozer. He said, and the words will be up here on the screen of this quote, it is delightful to worship God, but it is also a humbling thing. And the man who has not been humbled in the presence of God will never be a worshiper of God at all. He may be a church member who keeps the rules and obeys the discipline and who tithes and goes to conference, but he'll never be a worshiper unless he is deeply humbling. The primary question I want to ask across this room of primarily church people, the primary question I want to ask is, do, do we really love the glory of God? Do we really tremble at His holiness? Are we really captivated by His greatness? Are we really enthralled with His beauty? So that when we walk out of here, what's on our mind is not how good or bad the sermon was or how good or bad the music was. What's on our mind when we walk out of corporate worship is how great our God is and how much we love Him, and how much we enjoy Him, and how much there is nothing we will face this week in this world that can even compare with the satisfaction that we have found in Him. That's humbling ourselves and seeing His greatness, being captivated by His greatness in our corporate worship, and it's something we need to desperately recover. I believe the greatness of God is more than enough to hold our attention in worship, not only to hold our attention, to incite our affection and to lead us to humble adoration of God in worship. When we are a people who fix our eyes on God's greatness, are enthralled with His glory and captivated by His majesty, then we will truly begin to understand what worship is. If you've benefited from this message series, Awaken, we want to make you aware of the downloadable discussion questions available to you for free at Radical.net. These instructive questions will help you or your small group study through each week of the sermon series. You can download them for free at Radical.net forward slash highlight. That's Radical.net forward slash highlight. What's the danger if a church continually emphasizes passion in worship but fails to feature the truths of God's Word? Next week, David will continue the Awaken series by discussing honesty in our worship. The God who has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and we'll see you next week.